Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Amy Berger. Amy has a degree, uh, has a master's degree in human nutrition, and she is a certified uh, nutrition specialist and nutritional therapy practitioner who specializes in, in using low-carb nutrition to help people. She writes about health topics such as insulin, metabolism, weight loss, thyroid function, and more. She has also written a book called The Alzheimer's Antidote, using a, a low-carb, high-fat diet to fight Alzheimer's disease, memory loss, and cognitive decline. Amy, thank you so much for coming on to the episode today. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I've read your book well, as much as I can. Um, I find reading PDFs um, hard personally on a computer. I, mm-hmm. I wish I had a paperback of your book because uh, uh, I, I don't know, it's weird. Anyway, um, but yeah, reading your book, uh, it's a fantastic read. Um, so your title is all about Alzheimer's, but your your book really, if anyone's listening to this, don't think that um, only if you've uh, know someone who's got Alzheimer's or you're trying to avoid just that one condition that you should only read this book. This this book is about brain health and anyone who wants to have a healthy brain should read this book really. Um, it, it's, it's got so many great tips in it. So um, I just want to put that out before we even get into um, the brain stuff that uh, you've, you've uh, written about in the book so that people understand that. Um, so if we could, um, I'd like to maybe start off with just understanding um, what is the difference between Alzheimer's and just general old age cognitive decline? Um, good question. So I think as people age, especially when they get into very advanced age, you know, their 80s and 90s, it may be natural and normal to expect some degree of decline. You know, it's not it's not completely unusual for someone who is that advanced in age to start becoming forgetful and have personality changes. but In Alzheimer's, we see this happening in people younger and younger. There's people in their 50s and 60s now being diagnosed either with full-blown Alzheimer's or with early onset, you know, or or early onset Alzheimer's or the precursor, which is called mild cognitive impairment. Um, So I think part of the difference is just the age at which it's happening. I mean, Alzheimer's can really strike anyone, you know, past a certain age, but this the severity too, I mean you know, getting a little bit forgetful, having senior moments, we all have that. But, you know, Alzheimer's, at least as it progresses and becomes more severe, you get to the point where you are unable to care for yourself and you're unable to live independently. You know, people have to quit working. They really, they can't navigate behind the wheel of a car anymore. They get lost in in familiar places. They forget names of of people that they've known for decades. So, um, I mean, if I had to define it, you know, define the differences, that's really, it's, it's the age and the, um, the severity. Okay. Yeah. And, um, I've worked in an Alzheimer's home as, um, when I was a student as a sort of a a nursing job, a caregiver. And I can tell people that, yeah, when you, if you've never seen a person with Alzheimer's, there's a dramatic difference between someone who's just a little bit forgetful and someone who's far along into the the condition um they right. they don't even recognize loved ones anymore it's it's unfortunately it's not not a nice situation when family come around but um yeah it's so with alzheimer's then with your research did you find that there's there's an increase in alzheimer's um being diagnosed now like an increase in rate oh there's there's absolutely an increase um and and the question of course comes in in any condition where there's a, you know a relatively sudden increase in incidence where we ask ourselves is this truly increasing or have we changed the diagnostic criteria are our assessment tools better so that we're catching it earlier or we're identifying it in more people and i think it's kind of all of the above i think um we probably are looking for it more than we used to so it's being diagnosed more but i also i i think it's absolutely increasing in the same way that type 2 diabetes is increasing and uh you know obesity and cardiovascular disease have increased over the last few decades alzheimer's is another um you know condition that that parallels those rises yeah and that's um already got me thinking exactly that um 
yeah, did we just get better at um, either imaging studies or um, our because who who is the doctor who would diagnose Alzheimer's? Does it have to be a neurologist or a psychiatrist? Is there a particular doctor that does the the final di- um, diagnosis? Oh, that's a good question. And to be honest, I don't know. Um, probably a neurologist. I wouldn't think a psychiatrist had to be involved, but um, I don't know that a family doctor can diagnose it. And even even when people receive an Alzheimer's, I mean, most likely a general practitioner or a family doctor would refer somebody to a neurologist mm. for assessment and then the neurologist would diagnose it. Um, but the, the interesting thing is Alzheimer's disease is not supposed to be diagnosed in somebody who is living. What they are supposed to, it, it's a, they, they, they're supposed to diagnose you with something called uh, Alzheimer-like dementia or suspected Alzheimer's or something like that, because supposedly Alzheimer's is only supposed to be diagnosed upon autopsy when they look at your brain and they look for certain pathological features. And so um, they're not technically actually even supposed to diagnose it at all. It's just supposed to be, you know, like I said, proposed Alzheimer's, Alzheimer-like dementia. Oh, wow. That's some great history behind the condition then. So yeah, it's only on autopsy when they see the pathology then they come up with that. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, I mean that's that's technically. I mean, I mean, most doctors will probably say, "Hey, you know, Mr. Jones, you have Alzheimer's disease." But yeah. technically, in in the details, yeah, it's it's the other way. Well, I mean, you spent all that time researching the details, so it's it's great that you get <laughs> to share that stuff. Right. Um, so we, I, th- I guess, um, we've we've already discussed a little bit about symptoms and saying, yeah, it's it's forgetfulness, but it, there's a deeper spectrum that it goes into, and you'd need someone potentially like a neurologist. It sounds like to come up with the diagnosis. Um, so now with the causes, because that's really the big thing, and why your book is so great, because you touched on it a little bit already with the type two diabetes or the metabolic uh, disease increase, and is that now because what I'm trying to get to is is Alzheimer's Alzheimer's is just isn't just a genetic disease that only certain people are going to get it, your what you eat influences your brain health correct absolutely um and i i thank you for bringing up the 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 metabolism and type 2 diabetes because alzheimer's disease really is a metabolic problem and when I say metabolic, I mean it has to do with the way the brain uses energy. And I like to simplify it and just tell people that Alzheimer's is a fuel shortage in the brain. It's an energy crisis in the brain. And when neurons in affected areas of the brain lose the ability to get energy from glucose, which comes primarily from carbohydrate, but we can make it from other sources too, when the brain um, loses its ability to get energy from different starting compounds, these neurons actually atrophy and they wither and, you know, they, they almost kind of shrivel up and they can see this on MRIs. They can see that the volume of the brain has shrunk. And when these neurons start to wither and atrophy, they're no longer able to communicate with each other. They don't have enough energy to send neurotransmitters, to send chemical signals among themselves. And the natural result of that is the memory loss and the confusion and the cognitive decline that we see in this condition. Um, and the funny thing is, you know, when we say it's it's not just a genetic disorder, there is a genetic component that maybe we'll get into at some point, but certainly plenty of people get this illness without a family history of it and without some of the genetic risk factors. Um, but when we talk about obesity and type 2 diabetes and heart disease and infertility and all of these things that we sort of take for granted are rooted at least partially, if not primarily, in diet and lifestyle, We nobody questions that. We sort of accept that as a fact. Nobody says that diet and lifestyle don't play a role in type 2 diabetes or heart disease. And yet when it comes to Alzheimer's, we just act like we're clueless, like this could mm. not possibly be related to diet and lifestyle in the same way all of those other conditions are that have increased massively in incidence over the last 50 to 60 years. Yeah, and that's, um, that comes back to our earliest um, discussion about causes. And 
that links in with, I think people, the general public might assume uh, Alzheimer's is just a, a, a genetic thing. It's some people get it, some people don't. But what we're discussing here and what you, because of what you found out is how much of an influence the lifestyle decisions that person has made over their years has, has a effect on the brain health. And it could get so severe that it, it triggers an Alzheimer's um, event, I guess. Uh, uh, right, yeah. right. No, this. You, I mean, you said the magic phrase. This is not something that develops overnight. This is something that takes root in your body, in your brain, and builds over the course of years, and if in some people decades, so that you know nobody wakes up all of a sudden with severe Alzheimer's disease. This this decline in the brain's energy use that that I mentioned is measurable in people as young as their 30s and 40s. So they they can measure this via a PET scan. And when somebody's that young, the brain compensates. You know, they're robust, they're young and healthy. The brain is able to compensate for that energy deficit. But when it goes on for years and years, eventually it reaches a tipping point where that problem is so severe that the brain can't compensate for it. And that's when you start showing the signs and symptoms. But by the time you're showing those signs and symptoms, this disease process has been in place already for a very long time. Um, so that's why prevention is very, very important. And I think that's also why it's very difficult, although not impossible, but it's very difficult to turn this around once somebody is in the throes of it, because it's not something that just happened and you can just turn it around. It's something that has been building and growing worse for a number of years. I think you've probably got, uh, you know, this whole show is called Biohackers Lab and you've probably got some biohackers there stimulated thinking in their, if they're in their 30s or the 40s thinking, should I go for a PET scan just to make sure my brain is looking good? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you can, you can. I don't, I don't know it's something that, uh, you know, depending on what, what country you're in and how the healthcare system runs, I don't think it's something a, a normal doctor is going to order and that your insurance will cover. But if somebody wants to go that route, you can, but I don't think it's necessary for most people. Because another um, sort of uh, another tip that I read, I think this was in the New York Times a few years ago, was at an aging conference where they were to try pre predict someone who's got who's going to be I, I think it was Alzheimer's or it could be um, another um, cognitive decline condition, but it was about just I don't know if you came across this in your studies where if someone was walking and then you got the person to do a general arithmetic like math. That if they if their if their stride rate changed or their step stepping changed whilst they were doing the mass, that was always a, already a pre predictive um, event that your brain was um, not coping. Did you oh, come I across had, anything I, like that? I haven't come across that, but that's really interesting. That I guess you sort of you have to devote more energy to taking you know, to figuring out that problem. And so you're not actually able to keep up your previous stride because more of your energy and focus is put toward that, that cognitive problem yeah. they present you with. Yeah, no, I hadn't seen that, but I'm not surprised to hear it. Yeah, I'll send you the link. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was New York Times. It was, it was in a, it was a paper in, in a conference. So I don't know if the paper ever officially got published, but I thought mm -hmm. I found that fascinating. So if you could explain then, um, with the dietary effect now, um, because your approach is mainly to uh, use a low-carb diet. Is that correct? Right, right. Yeah. And that's because um, is it that a low-carb diet helps the brain um, work more efficiently? Yeah, you could say that. Um, the main reason that I advocate for a low-carb or ketogenic diet, which um, <clears throat> a ketogenic diet is just kind of a low carb diet to the next degree. It's very, very low in carbohydrate, higher in fat, kind of moderate in protein. The, the rationale for that is that if the primary sort of malfunction in the Alzheimer's brain is that these neurons are losing the ability to, to metabolize glucose and to get energy, is there some sort of alternative fuel that we can nourish these starving cells with? Is there some other way to feed them and give them energy? And lo and behold, there is. For whatever reason, even though these cells have lost the ability to use glucose efficiently, they can still use ketones. And and I'm sure, you know, your if your audience is biohackers, I'm sure they they know very well what ketones are, but in case anyone is new, I'll just explain very quickly. Ketones are just a different type of fuel um that 
most cells can use. Not every cell in the body can use them. Most cells can. The brain loves ketones. It soaks them up like a sponge. And ketones are only produced in the body when either carbohydrate intake is very low or insulin levels are very low. Because what what that does is it forces the body, when you don't have enough carbohydrate coming into your body, your body is forced to, to switch over to running primarily on a different fuel source. And the fuel source it will turn to is fat. And when we metabolize a lot of fat, we produce ketones as a byproduct. And some cells will use the fats as fuel and other cells will use the ketones. And, um, you know, they've done studies, thank goodness, not just in rats, not just in mice, not just in Petri dishes, but in human subjects with Alzheimer's disease, with myocognitive impairment, that when they get these people's ketone levels elevated, they do have improved cognition. Now, it's not a magic solution. It's not like the Alzheimer's is reversed <laughs> automatically, but they do show improved cognition. And the really hopeful thing about this is that because these people do show somewhat improved cognition, it tells us that those neurons were not dead. They were sort of hibernating. They were kind of in low power mode, waiting until a time when they got a fuel that they could use. Um, because if the cells were outright dead, these people would not have improved cognition. If those cells were dead, they wouldn't be able to metabolize anything. They wouldn't make any energy and there would never be a change in cognition. But the fact that there is a, an improvement tells us that that there's hope these cells aren't dead they're just kind of like i said in a holding pattern mm -hmm. and and this this is why um i wanted to speak to you so much too because the the whole reason when i got into biohacking and the low carb diets or the ketogenic diet was around the idea that eats eating a diet that helps to raise your ketones is good for brain health in general and that and Initially, it was my my insight was the, um, children with epilepsy and how I helped them. But then there was um, there was also another doctor. I've forgotten her name now. Uh, Mary, I think she treated her husband with coconut oil. Oh yes, Mary Newport. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, okay. And um, and it was so. It to me, it was just generally thinking when you look at end stage conditions like that, and you think, okay, if it's so good for them, could that be good even for me? Um, before you get to that stage like it's actually a good thing just generally for your brain and that's what it sounds like is the brain does like ketones it's a good thing for the neurons in the brain yes yes it is so i i like to clarify that if younger healthy people who just want to optimize their their cognition and their their overall health if they want to follow a strict ketogenic diet, they can, that's fine. But I don't actually think a strict ketogenic diet is required to potentially ward off this disease. And I, I say potentially because, you know, we don't know for certain that we can prevent it. I think we can. But so to p potentially prevent it or to just have healthy cognition as you age, um, I don't think strict ketosis is required. But what is required is managing your blood glucose and insulin over the long term and and you know living in a low inflammatory state and some people can do that with what i would consider more like a paleo diet or a low carb diet but not necessarily one that is strictly ketogenic so you know everybody varies in their carbohydrate tolerance in in the number the amount of carbohydrate that they can eat and either still be in ketosis or if they're not in ketosis still be what i call fat adapted still have kind of a fat based metabolism rather than more of a glucose based metabolism even though they don't have elevated ketones um so because i it's it's not just the ketones themselves that are helping people with Alzheimer's, um, and especially if we're talking about not just treating the the forgetfulness and the cognitive problems in the short term. That's that's a little band aid. I mean, in that in that sense, the exogenous ketones that your listeners are probably familiar with can help. Just get these people's ketones ketones higher any way you can. But I think that in addition to just the mere presence of the ketones, part of the, the benefit for cognition and for overall health of the low-carb diet is that not only are there some ketones being produced, but your insulin is low, your glucose is low, like I said, the inflammation is low. The whole overall metabolic state of the body is different, and that's not something that the exogenous ketones by themselves can do. Yeah, so there's a bigger picture to this. And exactly as you said, we shouldn't sort of um, zone in just on one chemical and think that's what's 
curing every or you know helping everything here otherwise right. exogenous ketones would just do the trick and they, and you can eat whatever diet you want and just take these exogenous ketones and you'll all be fine but that's not the case here so exactly yeah now i do think you know just real quick i do think for somebody that is already in an advanced stage of alzheimer's disease you know, you're not going to get that person to change their diet. It's very, very difficult. Even for young, healthy people who want to change their diet, it's hard enough sometimes to adopt a big dietary change, let alone someone who's in their 70s or 80s who is, you know, suffering from dementia. You're not going to convince that person to give up their morning muffin and orange juice in favor of eggs cooked in butter. So for those people, I absolutely think the exogenous ketones can help. It will it will improve their cognition, at least in the short term. But for somebody who's younger that wants to prevent this potentially, or if somebody is in kind of the mild stages of this and is still able to make a dietary change, I think the dietary change should definitely be the fundamental piece of this. Mm. And you can they they can use exogenous ketones in addition to the diet, but I do think the diet is the, the more important place to start. Yeah, because that has the bigger picture effects on multi systems, um, right? And when you were looking with exogenous ketones, um, I guess the, the the two main ones are the salts and the esters, and esters are only just coming out. Um, so um, I assume that the research that you were reading was mainly around salts, was it, or or um, is- it was it was both? And to be honest, I don't remember if one was more effective. But I know Dr. Newport in the last study she did, she was using the ester. Okay, well, I'm, and that uh- that seemed to be very effective for her husband. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I've got um, someone who's actually going to be uh, Brianna Stubb. She she she's an ester um, researcher, and she'll be coming on to talk more about the the liquid ester that's now available for mm-hmm. commercial use. That'll be interesting because you know, again, now you've got people interested, probably uh, thinking like, oh, maybe I, there is a good thing about buying um, exogenous ketones, not just because yeah. um, now for. I'm thinking it as like a brain supplement in a way, you know, so there's little times when I'm going to have a meeting or I don't know, um, there's a period of time when you want to just boost your brain. Do you think that, would you see any benefit from people sort of just taking cyclical supplements like that? People have reported that. Um, I haven't looked a whole lot at the research on cognition in healthy people. I know athletes sometimes benefit, but they, they seem to do better with the ketone salts than the esters and and some of the the leading sort of athletic and physical performance researchers who look at that actually think it may not even be so much the ketones as it is the salt because there's a lot of athletes who just don't realize how much sodium they need because they mm. sweat a lot and they're working out so hard so there's one one guy who thinks they're actually benefiting more from the salt part rather than the ketone part but I do think that healthy people with good cognition can benefit somewhat from the ketones. Um, I have heard that it's, you know, just sharper thinking, a really clear headed focus. Um, I think people who would probably notice a bigger difference are people that are living with some kind of brain fog, you know, Mm. or fuzzy thinking people that are already like, if you're already doing a low carb diet or a ketogenic diet, I don't know that you would notice a huge difference because you're probably already, you know, pretty sharp cognitively. Mm. And we'll get on to your supplements, your, your suggested supplements in your book. But before we get there, um, just to wrap up maybe a little bit more with the diets, this is where, I, like I said in the beginning, I know the title of your book is mainly, uh, it uses the word Alzheimer's in the beginning, but if you know, if anyone even just wants to start a low-carb diet, I could suggest your book because the amount of detail that you go into and how easy it is you make it um to understand where to start and what to eat and what appliances to buy, you know, to get to get cooking, it's fantastic that detail that you share in the book. Oh, thank you, I appreciate it. I mean, I, it is easier than people think it is. You know, um, you don't have to buy a ketone meter. You don't have to weigh and measure your food. People can do that if they want to, if they're into the data and they want to track things. But for people that are just looking to use this to kind of improve their overall life and and their health. I don't think they have to turn this into blueprints for the space shuttle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep it simple is always the the rule to to try to do yeah. in life. Yeah. And I and I specify in the book too that of course, you know, my book is written for 
people with Alzheimer's and cognitive decline, but I recommend if possible getting a diet buddy, like someone in your family or in your circle of friends to do this diet with you so that you're not doing it alone. And you know, this way of eating, I'm sure your audience knows, it's so effective for so many conditions, especially things related to insulin resistance or chronically high insulin. So obesity, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, BPH, benign prostate hypertrophy, um, gout, hypertension. It's good for so many things that people don't realize are coming from high insulin. Because I know we, we talked about Alzheimer's primarily being a problem of lack of glucose metabolism in the brain. And they actually call Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes, diabetes of the brain, or brain insulin resistance. And I think the reason that this is being missed in its early stages is because no one ever tests insulin. When you go to the doctor, they'll test your blood glucose as, as a routine part of the standard blood work. They never test insulin. And mm. all of these conditions, whether it's PCOS or gout or uh, you know hypertension or Alzheimer's disease, are coming primarily from chronically high insulin. And it's, it's just being missed because nobody's looking for it. Yes. It's, and... It's uh, that's a more accessible sort of hormonal test because insulin is a hormone. Um, so you, so you're um, maybe suggesting as a tip that uh, people should take notice of what their insulin is doing. And would you say there's a particular insulin test that you would recommend? Well, yeah, the insulin test is not something that you can do at home like you can with blood glucose or ketones. There's no home meter for insulin, not yet anyway. Um, I would start with the fasting insulin because if your fasting insulin is elevated, you already know right there there's a problem. But if your fasting insulin is normal, but you have signs and symptoms of chronically high insulin, you could do another test, which is it's an oral glucose tolerance test where you know, I don't know if, if people are familiar with that. You basically drink a, a pure liquid glucose solution and the doctor measures your blood sugar at like 30 or 60 minute intervals to see how it's going. But what you have to specifically request is to have your insulin tested along with the glucose because there's literally millions of people who have a perfectly normal fasting glucose and a perfectly normal hemoglobin A1C, but their insulin is sky high. It's very high insulin, keeping those other things in check. And it's actually the insulin more so than the high glucose that's leading to things like Alzheimer's and, and high blood pressure and all the rest of it. Um, so in some people, in, in most people that have an insulin problem, the fasting level will be elevated and that will tip you off right away. But in some people, you know, after the overnight fast, you haven't eaten, you're, you've slept. By the time you wake up in the morning, your insulin level is back to normal. But when you start eating during the day, it, it goes very high and it stays high all throughout the day. So the, um, the oral glucose tolerance test with insulin will, will show you that. That's a fantastic tip. Again, because, uh, yeah, as you said, people, I, I do know doctors order that, but they'll focus on the glucose. And you're saying that, uh, you know, just if that person's going to go through that process, make sure that they have their insulin tested um, just to so they get the full picture because they could be missing something. Yeah. And you really have to specify that that's what you want because it's not a standard test. There's a lot of doctors that, that won't even kind of know it exists. You have to, you have to ed educate them on it. There you go. Fantastic biohacking tip because uh, biohackers do like to do blood work. Yeah. So. But oh, for, for all the biohackers, because a lot of your listeners probably are already following a low carb or ketogenic diet. If you've been on a very low carb diet for a long time, if you decide to do one of these tests, which frankly, I don't recommend it for people that have already been doing this diet for a while and you feel well and you, you're happy with your physique, I don't think it's necessary. But if somebody just wants to do it anyway, you, you do need to carb up for a few days. I've seen anywhere from three days to five days to seven days of consuming about 100 to 150 grams of carbs because otherwise you're going to get a falsely high result. You're going to look diabetic when you're not. You have to sort of train your body to be using carbohydrate better. Like you wouldn't want to be on a ketogenic diet for eight months or three years and then, you know, one day go and get this oral glucose tolerance test. You definitely want to readjust your body to carbs so that you don't get a false result oh wow okay so when if you had that sudden burst of all the glucose liquid that you were taking in and you were strict ketogenic for a long time and you didn't do this prep like you're saying that 
your insulin level might sh- think might if you were requested that part of the test that it might sh- sort of suspect that you're turning diabetic i think both would probably look high the glucose and the insulin would probably be very very high okay fantastic uh Great tip again there. That's a good good point to know. Um, so with the so more with the treatments there too. Another one I want to touch on is um, so is the more medication part because as people age, then uh, they're more likely to to get given a chronic medication by their their family doctor by their general practitioner. And the two most common are statins and then antacids or uh, reflux medication. And you touch on those in your book. Yeah, these, I'm not completely anti-medication. You know, there may be a time and place for these medications, but we, we're putting people on these medications ever younger with no regard for the long-term consequences. You know, these these prescription antacids were never intended to be drugs that people were on for years, let alone decades, the way they routinely are now. And, you know, Healthy cognition doesn't happen by magic. The neurons in our brain need certain nutrients, not only not only to function, to make the proper chemical messages, you know, happen between each other, but the physical structure of the brain requires certain nutrients, you know, even to 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 form the cells properly. And these these prescription antacids inhibit the body's ability to to absorb nutrients um b12 is the classic one but there's magnesium iron zinc i mean that's what these drugs do they reduce your stomach acid production or they reduce the ph they they or well they i guess they increase the ph they make your stomach less acidic um which impairs your your body's ability to to assimilate the nutrients from your food so what do we think happens when someone has not been absorbing zinc and b12 and choline properly for 10 or 15 years um and and the statins are they're just even worse. And, and like I said, there may be a time and a place. There's a very small patient population that does seem to benefit from statins, but most people don't benefit from them at all. They don't need them. And I mean, statins reduce the body's internal synthesis of cholesterol. And what people need to know is that your brain is basically this sack of fat and cholesterol inside your skull. A full, I mean, depending on the, the source that you cite, about 25% of all of your body's cholesterol is in your brain. And most of that is to make the actual neurons themselves, the physical structure of these cells. So again, what do we expect to happen when somebody has, you know, impaired their body's ability to synthesize this absolutely essential element for neuron structure? Um, Like to me, the Alzheimer's epidemic is not a mystery at all. And I know, you know, Dale Bredesen is is another, he's a doctor who wrote a book called The End of Alzheimer's, and he tries to get his patients off of statins because they are they are an obstacle to healthy cognitive function, period. You cannot have a healthy functioning brain with inadequate cholesterol. Yeah, you know, I don't when I hear an Alzheimer's patient on a statin, it's a little bit like giving a 90-year-old a statin sometimes. And you kind of think, so what's the benefit here? Um are you trying to stop the person from a potential cardiovascular event? But if someone's got Alzheimer's, then, you know, they've got bigger problems than potentially having, you know, this cardiovascular event, I think. And the side effect is that it's, it's going to affect brain health. So, you know, that's the prime primary goal there is to improve the person's brain. Right. And, and in statin drugs, frankly, they don't prevent cardiovascular events anyway. Yeah. You know, what, what statins do is they do lower total cholesterol, they lower LDL, but having lower cholesterol does not protect you automatically from heart attack or heart disease. So it's, it's, it's tragic really is what it is. It is, it is a, it's a tragedy. And I think that certainly this consequence of statin use is probably unintended. It's it's not something that they knew about a long time ago, but they know about it now. Mm. They know about it now. There's no I anyone who knows anything about anatomy and physiology could look at 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 the biochemical mechanism by which a statin works and say that this is going to be problematic for healthy cognition. 
Yeah, and this the reason I bring it up is because any any people who have a loved one who's going through cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's, that that whole spectrum, you can look at their medication potentially in this situation and think and review it and say, should you be on a statin, for example, because you've got you've got brain health issues. Right. Um, so it's it's a good good thing for for loved ones to review and in nursing homes or um, Alzheimer's homes and that I, I think. Um, but I really was fascinated with your um, with the antacids, you know, with the um, proton pump inhibitors, which is so common. I, I, what's, what would a common name be in the U.S. for that that people might recognize? Oh, um, Prilosec is one brand. Um, Tagamet. I, they may have different mechanisms. There's a proton pump inhibitor, and there's another type of antacid called uh, a histamine two receptor antagonist. So, I'm not sure if they both have the same the same effect on the nutrient absorption because one of them one of them i think actually prevents the acid from being secreted one of them may try to neutralize the acid that's already been secreted um but yeah uh, prilosec is a big famous one tagamet and i'm I'm sure there's others that are just not coming to mind right now zantac i think is another one zantac but this this is also again where your book so many other people could benefit uh, benefit from it because when you talk about the the antacid section, it it sort of clarifies to someone who is suffering with reflux. Your reflux is because you've got poor acidity in your stomach, and the reason you and then you're adding something that's going to make it worse again. So you end up in a vicious cycle. So uh, you know that point there is also good for people to to know about. Yeah, it's okay. a it's a surprise to most people that that you know not everybody but most people who have acid reflux don't have too much stomach acid. They actually have too little, and so taking an antacid may help the heartburn and and the discomfort in the short term. But over the long term, you're actually making the problem much worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll move on to another potential uh, treatment or well, I shouldn't call it treatment, but like uh, something that could be used to aid brain health um, that you talk about are different supplements too. Do you want to maybe go through some of your favorite um, supplements? Sure. Um, I think supplementation, whether, whether we're talking about Alzheimer's or any other condition, it really should be individualized. Um, I don't necessarily recommend any sort of blanket like, oh, everybody should be on this and everybody needs that. I think there are, you know, there's there's key blood tests that you can get to assess your levels of some of these things. But uh, most people, I think, who have cognitive issues can benefit from high dose B12. B12 is critical for cognitive function. In fact, um, sometimes severe B12 deficiency can be mistakenly diagnosed either as Alzheimer's disease or other neurological issues such as multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease. Um, So B12 is a huge one. Um, Zinc, there's a lot of older people that are zinc deficient. And and again, part of it is because these, these antacids absolutely inhibit the absorption of B12 and zinc and and magnesium and iron and some other minerals. But um, even for people that are not on these drugs that inhibit, you know, that that interfere with healthy digestion, a lot of older people simply just don't consume enough of the foods that contain these. You know, um, when we look at, at zinc and B12, the richest sources are red meat. Red meat, shellfish, liver, egg yolks, all the foods that we've been cautioned against, whether it's because of their cholesterol content or their saturated fat content or whatever reason some misguided nutritional body wants to make up for why these things are supposedly bad for us. So people are just not really eating a lot of those things anymore. And and even, again, in people that don't take these medications, digestive sort of capacity decreases naturally with age. Um, so we have a double a double whammy problem of people not consuming as much of these foods in the first place, and what little they are consuming, they're not digesting them as well, even if they're not on, you know, antacid medication. But mm-hmm. so, I mean, to run through the list, I like B12, I like zinc. Um, choline can help some people. Um, some of the supplements that I like are Compounds that are helpful, again, for blood sugar and insulin regulation, because if Alzheimer's is ultimately stemming from a dysregulated glucose and insulin regulation in the brain, then we want to improve that. 
as as a fundamental step. So for that, berberine is very good. They call berberine herbal metformin, with metformin being one of the one of the few diabetes drugs that does seem to be very effective. Um, there's also what else am I thinking of? There's, there's think, some more esoteric supplements that that your your kind of audience biohackers might be into, and that's like PQQ and Hooperzine, mm-hmm. um, some of these the more nootropic aware. sort of world. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, that's I mean that's what nootropics all about: um, improving your cognitive uh, performance in the yeah. uh, short term and long term. Um, oh, and I should I should have said DHA as well, the long chain omega three. Um, again, just just like the. Up. Yeah, the brain is loaded with cholesterol. The brain is also loaded with DHA. Um, the cell membranes of your neurons have a ton of that omega-3. Um, so I think, you know, the best choice is to eat more seafood and eat more, you know, grass-fed meats will also have some DHA, but um, supplementing can also help people. Because that is where fish oils, uh, or omega-3 oils, are pretty famous for, um, is brain health. So you would say that there is a there is a good reason that someone would want to take a, a, a good fish oil for, for for general health and brain health in this sense. Yeah, I think depending on your diet, most people don't need to supplement. You know, if you're younger and you're healthy and you're eating maybe sardines or salmon regularly, you don't need to supplement. But for someone who's older, that's really not eating a lot of those foods. And the other side of the coin is, you know, you need to make sure to get enough omega-3. But the other side of that is reducing your intake of omega-6. Um mm you know, the omega-6 that comes, it's found in, in almost all foods, but pr- predominantly from the vegetable oils, things like soybean oil and cottonseed and corn oil, um, you know, really reduce your intake of that. And because it's not, it's not just an absolute amount, like you need this much omega-3 and this much omega-6, they, they sort of compete with each other for the different biochemical pathways that they're involved in. So when you have a ton of omega-6, for lack of a better word, it sort of crowds out the omega-3. So you, you don't just, you know, you, you wouldn't just want to flood your system with omega-3. You want to be careful to reduce the six as well. And I guess that ties back into the bigger picture scenario again that you mentioned earlier that naturally your omega-6 levels, your exposure to omega-6 would come down if you were eating a low carbohydrate diet. It can. It can can actually increase for some people because, you know, if you're using a lot of the oils, a lot of these vegetable oils, eating a lot of nuts, I mean, nuts are fine. Nuts have a little bit of omega-3 in them too, but some of them are pretty heavy on the six. So if you stick more to healthy animal fats, you know, from grass-fed animals, if possible, things like tallow and lard and um, bacon fat, egg yolks, but, you know, olive oil is fine, avocado, um, coconut oil, some of these other oils that are low in omega-6 are fine. Okay. So is that something, because I guess, do you do client work too when you, with nutritional client work? Do you do anything like that? Oh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. Because yeah. I'm thinking you must pick that up with some people implementing a keto or a low-carb diet that they're ingesting maybe a little bit too much omega-6 somehow. Yeah, I mean it's it depends on on what they're eating and I try not I don't want to demonize omega 6 entirely. I actually mm. think omega 6 is getting a little bit of a bad reputation. It is an essential fatty acid. We do need some. But the thing is it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So unlike the omega 3, we don't really have to go out of our way to eat that much 6. Now, people you're 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 right in that people who who adopt a low carb diet generally by default do decrease their omega-6 intake because the omega-6 is in all the processed foods that we eliminate, Mm. like things like crackers and chips and, you know, whether it's potato chips in the U.S. or fries in the U.K., chips, either one, (laughs) chips, um, you know, and and all the sort of packaged foods that have that. But if people are buying store-bought salad dressings, for example, or mayonnaise that are loaded with those oils... I think it's actually not so terrible to have those once in a while. You know, if your primary source of those omega-6 heavy oils are things like condiments, I don't think it's that bad because you're you're still going to get the primary fats in your diet from the meats you're eating. And, you know, like I said, maybe from avocado, from dairy, from cheese. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, I, and this is where it's just keep it simple again. You know, people can... Um sort of get themselves a little bit flustered especially with dietary stuff and then they they get stuck in a rut and then they feel stressed out so they do stressed eating and then they knock themselves off the diet exactly and i i try to i try to make this easy to do and it's it's you know it's 
it's more important to get rid of the of the starch and sugar than it is to worry about the fat composition. That's that's a secondary issue. It's important, but it's not the most important. And I mm-hmm. feel like if if you know, not everybody is going to be inclined to make their own salad dressing at home from olive oil and like make all their own stuff from scratch. And if that's okay, like you can absolutely reap the benefits of this way of eating with store-bought stuff. You just have to know what to buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I think I just want to put people's mind at ease because someone could sort of hyper-focus on that problem and then they they don't actually just eat real foods and uh, and they start fretting out. So it's nice to right. know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's supplements. And then, um, again, your book is just pack load full of cool information, um, that you could just use for general health. And then you also get into stress management, sleep management, exercise. Um, and this is all again, related to brain health. Yeah. I mean the, I feel like the unifying theory between all the other things that I address besides diet is, glucoregulation or managing blood glucose and insulin levels, whether that is the exercise or, you know, good quality and quantity of sleep and stress management, all of that helps the body deal with glucose better. Um, So again, to the extent that Alzheimer's is primarily a glucose problem in the brain, you know, it's not just limited to the brain. I think we think it's limited to the brain because nobody's looking for these other issues. You know, they get the doctor gets so hyper focused on what's happening in the brain that they don't look for the effects <clears throat> of insulin elsewhere in the body. Um, so yeah, I just think all of those, all of those other things are are places to start. I think it does have to be a multifactorial intervention. It can't, I think the diet is the cornerstone. The diet will go a very long way toward helping this, but I don't think the diet alone can do it. Um, you know, Alzheimer's is not, it's not happening because of one specific reason. So one specific intervention is probably not going to be enough to turn it around. I'm just thinking here, I can envision like a brain health pyramid. You know, everyone talks about a food pyramid. This is the brain health pyramid and the diet is the big foundation section. And then you can stack on other elements to improve your brain health. That's actually a really good heuristic. I might have to steal that from you. That's a good, that would be a read. No, it would be a great visual for people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, and people need uh, images to sort of understand like, oh, look, the diet makes the big part of the, the, the brain health scenario. So that I need to focus on that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, hopefully, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping people when listening to this, please, um, I'm going to, I'm going to link to Amy's book in the show notes um, to help promote it. but. Again, it's not just for uh, someone with Alzheimer's. It's if you want just general, generally to understand how good brain health should be. And then even if you want to start a low-carb diet, your tips in there are fantastic. Um, and it's for all ages, yeah, um, that, that someone can, can use that. But yeah. the biggest thing I'm getting from this, Amy, so far is that, yeah, with brain health and getting to a condition like Alzheimer's that it's all about managing um, your glucose and your insulin is, a, is the big ones that we need to take cognizance of that we need to be aware of. I think so. I think there's, um, there's other factors at work, but that's probably the most important. Um, there may be some other, you know, hormonal issues that interfere, like, you know, poor thyroid function can cause uh, cognitive problems. Um, there may be some other hormonal things that happen as we age, you know, lower testosterone, lower estrogen, all of those things can maybe contribute a little bit, but I think that the insulin and and glucose is number one. Yeah. And I'm just thinking again, when I worked in the nursing homes, um, in the UK, you know, um, the residents would just have a cup of tea with, uh, sugar loaded biscuits and that's what they got to eat a lot during the day um, right. and you kind of think it's it becomes a vicious cycle in some of these homes where someone's inactive because they're in a home they're not um the lighting is different so their circadian biology is going to be off um and then they're getting a diet that's not optimizing for brain health and then they get urinary tract infections which also cause cognitive decline and it just becomes it's it, I'm just thinking for people listening to this, if they have a loved one in in a care home, like how could they sort of help them? 
to- yeah, it's um, it's very difficult. Um, if if you want to try to implement this type of program, you really have to be in control of the person's diet and and their environment to some extent, but really the diet. And it's it's almost impossible to do if if your loved one is in a facility because it just um you just can't do it. The the funding mm. that those places receive and the type of, you know, there, I don't know how it is in the rest of the world, but in the U.S., many of those places are beholden to the official sort of government dietary guidelines and that these people are not allowed to have a certain amount of fat or, you know, they, they have to get a certain amount of carbohydrate. It's very, um, it's a very difficult situation. And I have a note, I think, in, in the introduction to my book, that if if someone's in that situation, if their loved one is in a facility, you know, try to have a polite conversation with the staff dietitian, with the management in these facilities. If we could even just get them to read my book, maybe it's not going to change the world, but maybe somebody's eyes will be open. Maybe somebody somewhere with some authority at some of these facilities would consider making a wholesale change. Um, and, and we could see what happens to the residents. You know, we could design a study that they implement in one of these facilities. And it's, I mean, it would be expensive. It wouldn't be easy. But those are the people we need to start reaching is the medical professionals in charge of these places. Mm. And that population base, the, that study group number is only growing X percent per year, you know, because we are aging population and then X more people are having to go into care facilities because their health is deteriorating. Right. Yeah, so it's it's only going to compound over the years, I can see. Yeah. Um, so you've got the book and you also do uh, nutritional consultations, so that's good to know for anyone listening if they actually want to reach out to you. How does someone keep in contact with you or, or follow you online? Um, I'm very active on Twitter. They can follow me on Twitter at Tuit Nutrition, T-U-I-T Nutrition. And uh, my blog is the same thing, TuitNutrition.com. And I think they can subscribe to the blog that way. And I, I don't do much on Facebook. For some reason, I just really dislike Facebook and I love Twitter. So um, don't look for I, I have a Facebook account. I don't really do much with it. Okay, so that's actually how I follow you is on on Twitter because you you have lots of conversations on there. So mm-hmm. anyone listening, if they want to reach out to Amy, um, her Twitter profile, which I'll link to, and your website. Yeah, and I, I'm based in Virginia in the U.S., but I do consultations long distance uh, all over via phone and Skype. Okay, fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for spending the time today to explain to us uh, about Alzheimer's and just general brain health. Thank you. It was great to be here. Yeah.